Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 9 once again. Romans chapter 9. We introduced this chapter to you last week in the first five verses, and we will continue to make our way through it this week. I've gone ahead and printed for you the the full outline for the whole chapter, but we'll really only make our way to the very beginning of it this week as we look at Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Romans chapter 9. Beginning at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together once again. Father in heaven, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word, to understand what we read in these verses, to accept what you declare to us, and to have it, like all other truths, transform us more and more into your image as those who will live for your glory, worship you according to your word, take your good news to others, and work for the good of your creation by the Spirit and by means of Christ and the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 9 begins with a strong sense of anguish. Paul confesses, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And in verse 3, I could almost wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. As a Jew, Paul is distressed that so many of his fellow Jewish compatriots are not accepting that Jesus is the Messiah and placing their faith in him and putting their hope in him for salvation. The prophet Jeremiah had promised, For I know the plans I have for you, Israel, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And Paul believes he's living in the time when God's promises are coming true. And so maybe he looks at the current state of Israel and he wonders, what kind of a future is this? Furthermore, Paul is bothered also by the fact that this outcome is somewhat unexpected. You see, as a Jewish Christian, 
Paul views himself as in line with his Jewish heritage. He says this all the time, especially in Acts. In Acts 28, he says, I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. And it is for the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. He tells King Agrippa in Acts 26, verse 6, that it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. And I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Paul sees Israel's story coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And he's part of that story. But why then are so many Jews not participating in the story? And lastly, not only is this an issue for Jewish believers, but Israel's unbelief could raise questions for Gentile believers as well. After all, we, those who are not born ethnically Jews, but who have become believers in Christ, the Bible identifies us as sharing in Israel's blessings. We share in Israel's identity, Romans 2. We are the children of Abraham by faith, Romans 4. We are God's adopted children, journeying towards the inheritance of a new creation, Romans 8. But if Israel's story got off track, well, how do we know that our story won't get off track as well? If God's promises have supposedly failed Israel, how do we know that the great promises of Romans 8 won't fail us? Paul writes Romans 9, 10, and 11 to answer these questions. And at the center of the issue is the question of God's faithfulness. Has God been faithful to his people? Has he been faithful to his promises? Will he be faithful in the future? And those questions have relevance for how God administers salvation And they also have relevance to how God governs your life. Can we trust God with our past, with our present, and with our future? Well, Romans 9 assures us we can. So let's let's follow Paul's argument as he traces how God shows us his faithfulness. As I've already said, the whole chapter is dedicated to answering this question. We'll see four ways total, but today we'll only look at the first. So here's the first way God shows you his faithfulness, and that is by perfectly shaping our past. God begins verse, or Paul begins verse six with a declaration. It is not as though God's word had failed. And this declaration follows verses 4 and 5. That's where Paul lists all those benefits that Israelites enjoy as part of the covenant people. And those benefits culminate in Jesus the Messiah. And as we've already said, it's a heritage that should have led Israel to embrace Jesus. But again, many of them have not. So in light of those promises, or excuse me, in light of those privileges, when you come to verse 6, the reference to word there probably refers then to God's promises. 
It's not has the Bible failed or, or the Bible been untrue in some way. Have God's promises and God's purposes failed? In the face of so much unbelief, has unbelief finally overcome God's promises? Paul asserts, no, they have not. And then beginning with the rest of verse 6, Paul will begin to support this. He'll give us reasons, some proofs that we can trust God's promise. So here's his first argument in defense of God's faithfulness. The end of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Paul begins his defense of God's faithfulness by distinguishing between different kinds of Israelites. There is an Israel within Israel, Paul says. And Paul has already prepared us for this distinction. Back in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul wrote, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So friends, there's an Israel according to the flesh, and there is an Israel according to the spirit. Now, how did Paul arrive at that distinction? How did Paul learn that such a distinction exists? And how does that defend God's faithfulness? Well, look at verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So the first thing Paul notes is that not every descendant of Abraham belongs to the covenant people. Abraham had two sons, one born through Sarah, Isaac, and one born by Hagar, Ishmael. However, as the Old Testament verse that Paul cites in verse 7 reminds us, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, the covenant blessings that God gave to Abraham were transmitted through Isaac, not Ishmael. And when you go back and reread the opening chapters of Genesis, again, what do we observe? God calls Abraham to follow him. And he promises Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And Abraham believes those promises. He doesn't yet enjoy the full possession of the land. That's something God says will go to your descendants. And when Abraham dies, those covenant promises are transmitted to his son Isaac and not Ishmael. To Isaac's descendants, God will give this land, but not to Ishmael's. So not every son of Abraham is going to enjoy the covenant promises. So now Paul goes on and he draws an implication from this in verses 8 through 9. Follow those. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. 
For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Paul gives the history, and then he distinguishes between different kinds of children. You've got the children of physical descent, and then you have God's children. Because not every physical child of Abraham is also a child of God. Well, what makes the difference? Paul's going to tell us several things that make the difference. Here's the first one he gives us here in these verses. What distinguished the two sons of Abraham? One was born in accordance with a promise. A promise that God made. God likes to do things in a way where it's obvious only God can do it. Abraham and Sarah were well past childbearing years when they had Isaac. God made them a promise. It was embraced by faith. The other child was born by human scheming. Human scheming driven by unbelief. So Paul's first point is we become God's children by embracing God's promises in Christ, not by our birthright. And that fits the whole argument that he's been making throughout this whole letter. We'll come back to say a little bit more about this. But Paul then gives another example in order to give another reason for this distinction. Notice verses 10 through 13. There he writes, not only that, But Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So not only did God distinguish between Isaac and Ishmael, but God then distinguished between Jacob and Esau. These were Isaac's sons. Before they were born, before they did anything good or bad, actions that might qualify them, or disqualify them from receiving God's blessings, God said this, Jacob will be the one through whom my covenant is transmitted. And God told this to Rebekah while the twins were struggling in her womb. You see, some may have said, okay, I understand why Ishmael doesn't inherit the covenant. He is born of unbelief. That is part of the explanation. Paul will focus more on that in Romans 10. But that's not the full explanation. And that is not where Paul begins his explanation. Paul begins his explanation by focusing here on God's sovereign decision. And that is why this second example is the stronger of the two. They're twin boys. They have the same mother and father. Yet God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. That's the point of that language. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. I have chosen Jacob to transmit my line through him. I have rejected Esau for that purpose. And when you say that's hard to understand, look, neither of these boys honestly deserved 
to inherit the covenant. But God chose Jacob and later revealed himself to Jacob and gave him the covenant blessings. And why did God do it this way? In order to uphold certain purposes. God's purpose in election, the primacy, the superiority of God's purpose, and this other purpose, not by works, but by him who calls. And again, just think of what we've already studied in Romans. Not by works are we commended to God, but he calls us by his grace. That is the history that Paul rehearses as he begins to give this explanation of why Israel is in the current state it is and why we can trust God's promises. Now, in light of that history then, let's answer a few questions. First, what point is Paul making? How does this recitation of the patriarchal history defend God's faithfulness and calm our anguish? Well, here is Paul's initial point. God has been making distinctions among Abraham's descendants from the very beginning. And he has been making those distinctions in accordance with his sovereign will. Now, that probably lands a little heavy with us. Here's the irony, friends. What I just said probably wouldn't have bothered Paul's fellow Jews. That would not have been a controversial statement. They were familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They already knew about God's distinctions. Here's what Paul wants Israel and believers to realize. We should not be, or let me put it like this, God has been making distinctions among his people from the beginning and Those distinctions have continued to the present day. God is still overseeing the administration of the covenant among his people. So we shouldn't be surprised to see only a remnant of Israelites believing at the present. Because this is consistent with how God has sovereignly worked in the past. This is how God brings about his gracious purposes in accordance with his will. Now, perhaps at this point, you're wondering, okay, wait. The answer to Paul's distress is, Paul, you just misunderstood God. He never promised to save every Israelite in the first place. So just be thankful you're one of the chosen few. Is that Paul's answer? Because that almost reminds me of the kind of people who say, you know, if you just never get your hopes up, you'll never be disappointed. It's all about managing expectations, Paul, and you really should have had better expectations. Is that God's answer to Paul? I don't think that fits the way Paul started the chapter. And it certainly doesn't match where Romans 9 through 11 is headed. Now here's the problem. I can't give you the full answer today. Okay, I can give it to you, but you're going to be here for a while. So I don't know if you have something in the oven or in the crock pot. I can give you the full answer if you want to go Romans 9, 10, and 11. What I will emphasize is this. 
Look where Paul starts. God starts his answer that way for a reason. He leads with his sovereignty in order to humble us, in order to make us bow before his purposes. But he also says more than just that. So let me do this. Let me just tease the full answer. And then I want to come back to this focus on God's sovereignty. The first thing Paul does say is God intentionally makes distinctions among his people. In verses 14 and 15 then, Paul asks this question. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul asks the question, is it unfair for God to work this way through Israel? Sovereignly selecting some and not others. And Paul says, not at all. God works this way in order to show mercy. And that is the double emphasis I hope you will get from our study of Romans 9. God works sovereignly in order to show mercy. So when you come to Romans 9, Paul's answer isn't just God is sovereign in salvation. And I think that's something we we do sometimes. We get to this chapter, okay, this is the predestination chapter, and it does bear witness to those truths. Let's not ignore them. But not as an end in itself. God is sovereign in salvation in order to show mercy. And not only that, but God is sovereign in order to show much mercy. Look at what Paul says in verses 23 to 24. What if God did this, pared Israel down, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This is the turning point of Romans 9, where Paul shifts his focus from those who are not receiving mercy to those who are. And when he looks at who is receiving mercy, he focuses on the Gentiles who are streaming into the church and embracing the gospel in large numbers. So Paul's point isn't God is sovereign in mercy, and that's just a narrow trickle through history. No, his point is God is free to narrow the apparent boundaries of his election by choosing some Jews. And he is also free to then expand the dimensions of his people by choosing many Gentiles. So Romans 9, it's not just a trickle, it's an hourglass. It funnels down so that it then may funnel back out. And when it funnels out, it funnels out big time. The bottom of the hourglass is bigger than the top. And finally, when we get to Romans 11 in a few weeks, we'll hear Paul saying this, Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. 
But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Present Jewish unbelief means riches of mercy for the world. And there is then still this prospect of full Jewish inclusion. So here's the surprising twist in Paul's understanding of Israel's history. Paul has to understand, how is it that the time of salvation has come, but Israel has not yet believed? You see, Paul is looking at his watch and he's thinking, I thought it was time for their salvation. But God is saying the time has come for the world's salvation. And in order to purpose that, in order to accomplish that purpose, well, now Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That is the story God is telling his people. And that story brings Paul a lot of hope. So what then does that story, at least just the first part, tell us about God and his faithfulness? tells us a few things. First, it assures us it is God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness, that advances salvation history, not ours. You see, Abraham tried to advance the covenant line. How well did that work out? It was a disaster. When he trusted God's promise, then good things happened. And it will go the same way for you in your life, or in the life of this church, or in the life of God's work in the world. Again, in the case of Jacob and Esau, neither of those two, deserved to experience God's blessing. Esau only cared about food. We might say he had a secular outlook on life. But Jacob is a lying trickster. God showed Jacob mercy. And again, it is that mercy that will bring blessing to your life. Are you trying to grasp at that mercy? Are you trying to grasp at success? Are you trying to work it all out on your own? The sooner you submit to God's mercy the sooner you will see God's blessing in your life and again in your church. Maybe God sometimes acts in a way where it doesn't look like things are progressing. That's what Paul's seeing as he looks at this Old Testament story. What is God doing? doesn't look like God's working, but God is. Because everything that happens happens because of God's faithfulness, not ours. Second, God acts faithfully so that we will not boast. You see, Jewish thinking in Paul's day maintained all Jews are elected to salvation by virtue of their inclusion in the covenant people. So if you're born an Israelite, you're good to go. You have a share in the life to come. Now, you could opt out of that through apostasy. But other than that, you are good to go. And it was also common teaching that God chose Abraham because of his outstanding moral and spiritual ability. That's what makes Israel superior to the nations. Paul gets to this chapter, and we tend to think, okay, these are middle chapters. They talk about something else. Paul says, I'm going to keep telling you what I've been telling you through all of Romans. It is not your birthright that gives you salvation. 
It is believing God's promises. It is not your works that bring you to God. God calls you to salvation. As some theologians have put it, we are saved by grace rather than race. And that applies as much to us as to Israel. It's not our heritage that guarantees our salvation. It's not our good works. It's not our status or our accomplishments. None of those things commend us to God. We're all Jacobs. But God shows us his mercy. God shows us his love. He loves us. And that is what saves us. Two more ideas. Third, God's faithfulness culminates... And Jesus, the Messiah, remember, where did Paul start this whole discussion? Verse 5, from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. And we'll have to wait a few weeks to get there, but in 10.4, Paul declares Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Keep tracing Israel's history. It doesn't get much better. But where does it eventually lead? To Jesus, the Messiah. There's a faithful Israelite chosen by God and faithful to God. And he brings salvation to the world. And he brings salvation to the unfaithful. So as Paul argued at the end of Romans 8, if Paul has been faithful to give us Christ, he will be faithful in every other area of life as well. So lastly, as Paul reviews Israel's past, he sees it as an expression of God's perfect will. As one commentator puts it, God is sovereign. And if he wishes to choose Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau, that is his divine prerogative. God did what he did in the past. In order to bring about his will. Now, if that is true of salvation history, the big things, it is true of your life. God's actions in the past can actually reassure you that you can trust God in the present and in the future. Maybe for some of you, parts of your past are distressing. They're hurtful. They don't bring you a lot of comfort when you reflect on them. How does Paul Think and pray his way into the future as he writes these chapters under the inspiration of God. He starts with what God did in the past and he says God was sovereign over it all in order to bring us to this place where he can sovereignly show mercy to so many. As he understands how God has worked in the past, He gets a sense of what God is doing now and what God will do in the future. So maybe in your life, God sometimes surprises you how he works. Things take a turn you don't expect. You wonder what God is doing. But perhaps by God's grace, you could look back and see, kind of like Joseph, that it was God working all along. Can you trust that God? who sovereignly orchestrated all those things? Paul's answer is yes. The word, the promises of God have not failed. They are not inadequate to the task. As God promised Abraham, 
at the appointed time, I will return. I wish God had said at the opportune time or at the time you want, I'll return and do. He said at the appointed time. So whenever God does what he does, it is the best. And if you're wondering, would it be wise to trust that? Would it be safe to trust that? God's assurance in these chapters is yes. Because of his sovereignty and his mercy and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's give thanks for those things and pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your mercies to us. Thank you so much for your grace. And Lord, distill our hearts in these moments to bow before that mercy. To let our words be few, Lord, but to simply say thank you for your kindness and for your goodness and for your mercy. Give us grace to accept what you have planned and faith to trust what you have planned and have yet revealed in our lives, in this church, in the advancement of your salvation throughout the world. I I do pray, as Rhett has already prayed, that we would see a Pentecost in Japan. Perhaps it's a narrow trickle now, but you will explode it among the Gentiles for the sake of your mercy. Please do that. Please do that for us here in the upstate. Lord, we don't deserve your mercies. We would not presume upon them, but here you promise that they are rich and that they are expansive. So, Lord, would you be pleased to do that? For us, Do it in our lives, do it in this church, do it in this area, do it throughout the world. And again, forgive us of our sins against you, and thank you so much for your faithful mercies towards us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.